Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Um, Matthew chapter 2 is one of the records of the, um, of the Christmas story. We've got Matthew who tells a certain story from, um, Matt, from Joseph's perspective. Starts off with the genealogy and then he goes into the story of the, the, the Magi in chapter 2. And, and on from there. You have Luke who tells a story of, of um, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary. Uh, and so we'll look at that. Um, passage next week. You have Mark that kind of just jumps right into it. You have John, the other gospel that we looked at a couple weeks ago, and he starts off with this in- incredible statement of, in the beginning, he just kind of goes back to, to what was from eternity. But Advent and Christmas is the, is the season of expectation. It's the season in which we remember the arrival of the Messiah to this world. And we celebrate with expectation that that same Messiah will one day come come again, because this isn't the end. We look forward to um, what God promises for all his people, life eternal with him. And we can experience that life in great fullness right now. Uh, But as we have even sung this morning, do you feel the world is broken? We do. And, and, And we feel that deeply within our bones. And so it makes us ache and long for a time in which God will come and he will set all things right. And, and so as we look at our passage this morning, though, I want to just begin Advent together. Again, Advent is this season of arrival. It's this season of anticipation of the coming of Jesus, who is the light of the world. And, and a verse that I've shared with you the last couple of weeks uh, comes from the Gospel of John. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and nothing was made apart from him, and in him was life, and that life was the light of the world. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Going down a couple of extra words, and the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. We light candles, different traditions do things differently. We light candles to be reminded that the light has come into the world. And that no matter how dark it may seem outside, light always pierces the darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. And so, with that said, would you stand with me for the reading of the scripture? And could you bring the lights up just a little bit so we can see our Bibles a little more clearly during this time? Thank you. Matthew chapter 2 says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. 
And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and, attacked, and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. These are the words of the Lord. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word to us. We thank you, God, that you have come to us that the one who, um, who we receive today as we have sung joy to the world, let the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. God, that the one that we have received today is one who, as one writer said, has already with open arms received us. And so God, we thank you for receiving us through Christ. We thank you, God, for offering salvation through Jesus alone. And God, we thank you for the gift of being able to worship this morning, to have our hearts and our minds set upon what is right, upon what is true. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide us into all truth. We trust you to do that this morning for your glory and for your honor and for your name. We pray in Jesus' name. We say, amen. Please be seated. So a fairly traditional story, if you've been around the Bible or if you've been around church, it's a story that you kind of know. It's a story of these magi who come to worship a king. Now, in the ancient time, um, kings were pretty important. Uh, you know, a lot of nations today don't have kings, but in the ancient period, the king is the one who said, this is what we're going to do. Um, and we're introduced to what I will call a shepherd king here, because when the Magi come to worship the baby, they're coming to say he is one who's going to shepherd his people Israel, as the prophet Micah has said, but, he, but they also say to Herod, and we'll talk about him in just a minute, uh, he's a bit of a hot mess, uh, but they say to Herod, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? When you think king, you think power, you think authority, you think when they say something, that's what you do, right? That's just how it goes. When you think shepherd, sometimes we have this idea of shepherd as someone who is meek and mild or something like that. We'll, We'll talk more about shepherding next week, but when you think about shepherd, two words I shared with you last week are intimacy and Um, obedience in terms of how they interact with the sheep because the shepherd's honor and integrity is based upon how they care for those who are underneath their charge. And Jesus is described as a good shepherd. In fact, he says that in the the gospel of, of John. He says, I am the good shepherd and he qualifies it by saying, I lay down my life for my sheep. In other words, when he says, I'm a shepherd, Jesus, and of course this is after the story we're talking about today, but when Jesus describes shepherd, he describes one who cares about those for whom have been entrusted to him. 
And so th- th- this matters about how we look at the characters of these people. Um, let's talk about Herod for a moment. Herod is uh, an interesting guy. Th- th- this, this narrative starts off with two phrases. In, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it says, in the days of King Herod. And the original audience knew exactly what that meant. They knew this is a, this is a king who's a bit of a crazy person in many ways. Um, now, Bethlehem is not the, the capital city of of Israel at this time, Jerusalem is, but Bethlehem is only about six miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, if you can kind of see it here, this is modern day Bethlehem right now. You've got the Church of the Nativity right over here uh, in this area, get my pointer in the right place. Um, This is the approximate area of the Iron Age village. So this is several hundred years before, um, of, of course, when this photo is taken. But when you think about Bethlehem, you've got to think about a small town because this was a small town. But it's within visual distance of Jerusalem, which is just on the horizon. It's about a six mile walk as the crow flies. Here's a photo taken in the 1870s of the ancient village of Bethlehem. So when you think about someone's coming to be born in Bethlehem, this is not a super big town. So that gives a little bit of a context here. But when you think about Bethlehem, here's another photo of Bethlehem. Here's the Church of the Nativity right here. Here's the same Iron Age village from a couple of slides ago. You have in the distance not only Jerusalem, but you have a place called the Herodium. Now, the Herodium was one of Herod's palaces because, as I mentioned, like, if you're a king, you've got some power, you've got some authority, and Herod had several different palaces. He had the Herodium, he had Caesarea um, off on the Mediterranean coast, he had a palace called Caesarea, Maritime, I believe it's called. He had one that's called Macarus, and he had these different palaces in different places so that in case someone wanted to come after him, he had a strong place to go back to and to kind of hold up and and to defend himself from. So when you're thinking about this small little town of Bethlehem, here is the Herodium that Herod built for himself. Herod was a master builder. Uh, He he was brilliant in many ways. Some of the stones that he laid in the temple area in Jerusalem are still unfathomable. How with the tools that they had available to them at that time, how they got a stone that was like three people long. Like if you were to stand here and you had two more people like this, like that would be the length of the stone. And of course, this is before they have any heavy machinery perfectly cut, brought up onto the um, place. The Herodium, yes, this is a swimming pool up on top of this thing. And this is not a terribly like... um, water plenty area. They, they, they didn't have like the same outdoor plumbing in order to fill up your swimming pool. They had other people. He would use slaves to fill up a swimming pool. He literally built, and this is the Herodium right here. You have to walk up this. And then he literally built a mountain around his fortress at the top of this. So when you think about Herod, you got to think he's, he's a brilliant builder. You also have to think he has this, um, this, this driving desire to protect himself at all costs. And the interesting thing too about Herod is that um, he spends a lot of years trying to acquire a kingdom here. And he's king for a long period of time. Um, but he's not really fully Jewish. He's half Idumean and he's half 
Jewish, which means when we talk about having a rightful claim to a Jewish throne like king of the Jews, he doesn't really fit the bill all that much. Um, and so here's kind of another photo that you, an aerial photo of the Herodium. You can see this is the lower part where the swimming pool is at in the upper right part of your screen. Um, here's the center of it. There's dirt that's built up about 100 feet on the sides. And then Herod's tomb is over here. And it was really hard to be under the reign of Herod. In a word, he's self-preserving. I guess that's a hyphenated word, but he's, he's self-preserving. And in another word, he's suspicious of anyone that might threaten his rule. In fact, during his reign, um, he had one of his wives, he had his mother-in-law, and he had various sons killed because he felt like they were a threat to his power and control over the people. Just think about that for a moment. Not only that, it was so severe that one historian records that Augustus, who was the Roman emperor, had said bitterly that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. So when you think about this idea of a king, and you think about the narrative where the Magi come to King Herod, or they come to Jerusalem and King Herod hears of it, and they say, we are here to celebrate the one who has been born King of the Jews, what does a power-hungry person who is out to save his skin at every cost want to do? He wants to exert his power over the people. He wants to get rid of any threat to his throne at all costs. This is who Herod was. Incredible engineering. I think I've got one more photo here for you. This is Herod's uh, tomb, I believe, right there with the city of Bethlehem in the distance. And so when you think about Bethlehem, Bethlehem really stood as a small city or a small town even in the shadow of this amazing um, fortress that Herod had built for himself. And so when Matthew um, sets the context of chapter two here, and he says, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, we have to think like the people would have thought, and they would have gone, whew, that's a hard time to live in human history. We have to feel the tension of a crazed ruler who's being confronted by these magi that they're looking for a newborn king of the Jews in order to worship him. And we have to feel the tension of verse three here, saying, "Where uh, this is verse two, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, we've come to worship him. Verse three, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And when you're the king and you're deeply disturbed, it naturally follows that all Jerusalem will also be disturbed. <laughs> they're, they're all going, what's gonna happen now? On top of this, you have, um, you have Herod who is a, a, a little bit of an oppressive ruler. He, he had significant taxation and tyranny against the Jewish people and that had invited resistance and so there's an undercurrent of a longing for a rightful ruler who will rule justly. And this is where the prophecies of scripture come into play in our story. So the, the wise men or the magi come to him and, and they say, where is he who's been more king of the Jews? Herod hears this, he's disturbed, but notice what he does in verse four. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people 
in other words, the religious people, and he says, where does the Hebrew Bible say that the Messiah will be born? So we're introduced to another character here, or a group of characters, some chief priests and some, some, some scribes, some religious people. And they say, rightly so, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. All right, so they're going back to something that comes from the book of Micah. Alex read it for us this morning. We'll look at it here in just a second. So they're in Bethlehem, which is a place called House of Bread. This, um, in Micah, it says, you Bethlehem Ephrathah, which means fruitfulness. This fruitful place, out of you is going to come a ruler. Micah chapter five, verses two through four say, says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. I love that God often uses places and people that are small in the whole scope of things in order to do amazing things. Um, you're small in the clans of Judah. And one, of, one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. And so the, the, the chief priests and scribes here, they say, well, the scripture says that out of Bethlehem is going to be one who is called a ruler over Israel. So they link this, um, this expectation of the Magi and this ruler who has come um, with what God has promised in the scripture. Now, Micah's an interesting um, it's an interesting book. It, it's a book written by the prophet Micah. God, God gives these prophecies to Micah to give to the people of Judah, and he writes them down. And, and these are prophecies, because Micah is dated about around 722 BCE. So about 100 years before the time in which two actually happens, Micah is saying, out of Bethlehem, the smallest of the clans of Judah, there's going to be who will come to be ruler over Israel. This is what's called predictive prophecy. Right? This is not something that you can just happen to have. This is something that God will fulfill in God's perfect timing. And for 700 years, this prophecy has been held. And in 722, it's a kind of an important year because in 722 BCE, the northern 10 tribes of Israel are taken away into captivity by Assyria. And so those who are down in the other two tribes in Judah are looking up at their brother and they're saying they're going off to, to Assyria because of judgment for them not following God. And, and God is going to be telling various prophets at that time, including Micah, by the way, it's also going to happen to you in Judah. A couple hundred years later, around 603, 605, down to 586, because we're working with negative time here, um, you have three different deportations from um, Babylon who comes in, Nebuchadnezzar, we studied this with the book of Daniel, and he takes the people of Judah off into captivity. So you have several hundred years of this, when is the ruler going to come to rule over Israel? Because from the time of this a proclamation up until, um, up until even the time when Jesus is born, it's been a divided kingdom. There, there has not been one to come rule over all of Israel. And so there's this longing and this expectation, kind of like what we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. There's this like, God, when are you going to do something here? And these chief priests and these um, 
teachers or scribes of the law, they tie what the Magi say, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews, um, to this prophecy. The one who's been born king of the Jews is the one who's the fulfillment of Micah. Notice what it says here. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. But notice what it says here. This kind of gives us a clue that we're not just talking about an average ruler. His origin is from antiquity. In other words, before you could even imagine it, he already was. He is from eternity. This is a different kind of ruler that God is promising through the prophet Micah. Different than David, different than Solomon, different than any of the other kings or any of the other judges that had come before or would come after. It says there that he will abandon them um, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That's talking about this story right here, the time when she is in labor has been given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. It says he will stand, and this gives us an idea of of who this this Messiah, who this king will be. He will stand and he will shepherd. He will shepherd them. So he's being described as a king, but he's also being described as a shepherd. But how is he going to shepherd? He's going to shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. In other words, his credibility will, will be because he is, so, he is so tied in to caring for the sheep underneath his care. And, and it's going to be all about God. It's not going to be about his name necessarily. Now we know, of course, this is the Messiah, Jesus, and his name is one with God because he is God. But here the thing that is trying to make sense of all of this is is that this is a different kind of shepherd. This is a different kind of king. And it promises here that they will live securely for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And actually, even with this predictive prophecy in Micah 5, we have uh, a partial fulfillment in the Messiah Jesus when he comes the first time. And I think we have a more clear fulfillment when Jesus comes again the next time where there will have greatness extend to, to all the ends of the earth and there will dwell securely. I think that there's multiple levels of prophecy that are going on here in Micah chapter 5. But from the standpoint of the Magi, they're coming and they're saying, who is he or where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is this king who would be committed to God? And who is, where is this king who would be committed to the security of his people? Enter the Magi. Um, some of your translations say wise men. The word in Greek is the word magos. So many of your translations say magi. And we're introduced to these guys who, who are stepping down into this story. And they have come, I believe it says, they have saw his star in the east. And they have come to worship him. Now, it doesn't exactly say where the magi come from. Some scholars think that they came from the south. Because when it says gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a lot of those elements uh, that become part of the gifts are things that are harvested down south of Israel. Um, Many scholars think that they are off to the east, probably in the Assyria or Babylon or Persia kind of center. And that would kind of make sense to me in the sense that um, if it's from a Persian or Babylonian origin, this region was the leading region for astronomical knowledge. And you can go to Daniel chapter 2 and read about that and and how um, that finds its way into that story. But there's also a strong Jewish heritage in this area because of the exiles that is mentioned in Daniel. 
In the ancient text, uh, this term magos describes someone with the reputation of having a special supernatural knowledge or ability. Um, They are not likely kings, but in the culture, they served as advisors and they served as wise men to the kings. They often were of nobility or priestly background. So these were people of standing. We have no idea if they were three, We just know that there's three gifts. So there's this group of magi that come, and they come to Jerusalem, and it causes a little bit of a a stir, a little bit of a a, a, um, a hubbub, if you will, that's going on there. And they come in, and Herod tells them, after finding out that it's in Bethlehem where you can find this, this, um, this king, he says, go and worship and then come back and tell me so that I can go and worship, right? Like we already know this guy's a bit of a off the hook kind of person. Uh, you'll find out later uh, in verse 16, which we won't read today, that after he's outwitted by the wise men, he sends people to massacre all the male children of Bethlehem. So all of our preconceived notions have been confirmed um, as he goes to do some horrific things uh, in order to secure his rule. These wise men come. They're men of wealth, wisdom, and influence in their culture. They witness the star that was a revelation from God that something significant was about to take place. Not only did they witness that something significant was about to take place, they acted upon it. They traveled, they traveled in faith, I think, to see Herod, who's likely in Jerusalem here, he is in Jerusalem according to the couple, first couple of verses, to inquire about the soon coming king in order that they may worship him. And so we've been introduced to a couple different people in the story. We've got Herod, we've got chief priests and scribes, and then we have these, these magi, And they all have a slightly different um, trajectory in terms of how they respond to this news. Herod, for example, Herod reacts as a powerful, brilliant builder, but he's fearful and he's paranoid, and he's willing to do almost anything to remain in control. In fact, he even seeks to kill the child. This is a reaction of great hostility to the news that a Messiah would be born to you this day in the city of David. You've got these religious leaders, chief priests and scribes. Um, they're, they're, they're powerful. They, 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 provide great, or they provide leadership for the people of Israel in Jerusalem and in the land. They're knowledgeable about scripture. But, but notice, after they tell Herod, there's no indication that they acted in any way other than saying, here's what the scripture says. And maybe that's out of fear. Maybe that's saying, here you go, we're just backing away because we're not touching this one. But we have a third group of people, men of wealth, wisdom, and influence, who observe and act upon spiritual realities, even from a distance. Uh, Imagine that you were going on a trip. Um, Several years ago, my wife and I went to the Philippines, and um, we'd never been to the Philippines before. We went with some friends of ours. It was 17 years ago or so, and we went to go visit some missionaries that we partner with over there. And so we took like 20 hours of flights. There's three different flights. We we finally land on the island that we're going to, and we landed, literally, there's no lights on the island of significance to land a plane. So we're circling, getting ready for the landing, and they're like, we have to land before sundown 
down because if we don't, we've got to go back to the big city. I'm like, Lord, please land. <laughs> you know, like, let's get landed here. Um, we ended up landing uh, on this island in the middle of the Pacific. As we land, we taxi, we get off, we get our bags, we walk out, we grab a taxi, and we were planning on staying at a certain place. Um, we didn't know where it was, but our friends knew where it was. So they're kind, of, they're kind of leading us. We all get into this taxi van, if you will, with all of our stuff. We start driving down the road, and the lights of the city kind of grow back in the distance. It starts getting dark. And one of the people we're traveling with, uh, she goes, huh, I don't remember it being so dark last time I was here. And we're going, oh, no, what's going to happen? Are we going to die or something like that? We had no idea what to expect. Imagine you're traveling as a Magi and you're coming hundreds of miles, literally hundreds of miles. If you're coming from Babylon, they're around, I think it's at least a thousand miles, if not more, but that's my memory. That's maybe or maybe not right. Uh, You can check that sometime if you want. Um, they're, They're coming a significant way. They're traveling with camels or they're traveling with donkeys or they're traveling by foot or a mixture, combination of all these things. And they're going, we're just following the star. We're not exactly sure where it's gonna go, but we know that God is doing something here and we know that we need to go and we need to worship. So they come, they, they enter Jerusalem, which would be the natural place that you would go to say, hey, where would a king be born? Where would I find myself a king? So they go to Jerusalem and he's not there. But they're directed to this little town of Bethlehem, about six miles outside the city. And so they go there and notice what happens when they go there. This is verse nine. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, notice what they did. They, they, well, notice what they didn't do. They didn't go, oh, I'm so tired. They said, they, we were overjoyed beyond measure. I actually like some of the translations. I, I think one of them says, um, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. In other words, their excitement could not be contained because they had reached the destination that they knew God was leading them to. And they knew what was coming next. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees. Think about this. These are wise men. These are people of standing. And they've walked in before the presence of a little baby. And falling on their knees, falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And and there's the third option of how people responded to the message, right? On the one hand, you you have a king named Herod who is committed to his own security. He's just trying to protect. You have religious leaders who are also perhaps committed to their own preservation, even if it meant indifference to the amazing thing that God was doing by stepping down into humanity. Humanity. Finally, you have these magi. Now, I put pagans, question mark, because some people suggest that they might have uh, kind of a Jewish uh, upbringing. Many people suggest that they don't, so question mark, I'll let you study and decide for yourself. Um, But but, but these, these men come, but they're committed to something. If they are not Jewish, and that's what I mean by pagan, someone who is not Jewish in this time. If they are Gentile, you could say. Uh, If they are Gentile, these are people who are coming to worship the Jewish king in 
the area in which the Jewish people live, and all the while, people like Herod and people like the chief priests and the scribes are absolutely unaware of what's going on. But these guys are committed. These guys are committed to worshiping the true king. And as we think about this, one of the things that's helpful to think about is um, how do people respond to the same message of Jesus today? The message that he came, the message that he will come again. And, and I would argue that there's at least three ways that people respond to the message of Jesus. Just to back up, there are those who are committed to their own security. There are those who are committed to their own preservation. They may have standing or they may have military power. They may have their own idea of what that is. They may just be dependent upon their own bank account. Be like, no, I can do this myself. And that maybe describes some of us in this room today. Like, no, I, I'm really like hostile to the, the work of God in this world. There are those who are um, indifferent, who, who maybe have even received Christ as Lord and Christ as life, but really it's like, mm, do I really want to pick that up? Like what those guys were talking about earlier. They're being led by the Holy Spirit to go do something on behalf of God to share the hope and the grace of Jesus with the people who God has placed in their midst. What they're modeling, what those two young men are modeling is not indifference. They're modeling, God, where are we going now? God, what would you have me do here? It's really easy, and I would dare say most of us have been there. It's really easy to be to, to walk in a way that is indifferent to the claims of God. To, to keep our mouth open when the Holy Spirit may be saying, I want you to speak here. Like a month ago, we had some guys show up at our door um, from a very different faith background and, and they wanted to witness to me and I said, guys, I think we're gonna have like, we're not gonna meet eye to eye here. <laughs> um, and after they left, totally kind, you know, we had a good conversation, but kept it short. I had other things in my mind. I had other things on my agenda. And about 20 minutes after they left, I went, Lord, I think I just missed an opportunity there. They came to witness to me. I needed to be bold and to witness to them. <laughs> They're trying to find their way to life by doing good things, and they can't do that. They need Jesus. They, they need a true revelation of Jesus. And I can't, I, we, we can't force someone to receive the gospel, but we can't be faithful. All of us, I think, most of us, all of us, have moments in our lives where we're, where we're indifferent to the gospel and to the claims of Jesus on our life. But many of us have found ourselves here as well. Moments in our life where we go, God, I'm all in. I am committed to worship. The idea of worship is to ascribe worth to something. When these guys fall on their face, which is what the word pros, proskuneo here in the Greek means, they fall on their face to worship. They're saying, this isn't about me. This isn't about Herod the king. This is about what God is doing in the midst of our broken world. Because the world was broken then. It was broken back when Micah first gave that prophecy. And friends, it's still broken today. But Jesus loves to step down into broken things and he loves to make them beautiful. Many of you have experienced that. You've experienced that in your life where God has taken 
oh, an unsettledness, or he's taking, he's taking a lack of peace. And as you have trusted him with someone or something, God has said, I got you. I'm with you. Even if in the world you will have trouble, as Jesus says, he says in John's gospel, take heart because I have overcome the world. There's a sense of perspective here when we talk about prophecy. We sung it this morning, do you feel the world is broken? We do, but is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scrolls? The book of Revelation says, the line of Judah, the lamb who was slain. There's only one who's worthy. And perhaps maybe that's what this passage teaches us most of all. We can serve our own power. We can serve the power structures of our society. We can serve our own indifference. Or we can serve the king. The king who is above all kings. The king who stepped down into this world and became a shepherd. Jesus is described by by Micah in other passages as, as a humble, as a shepherd king who left his throne to rescue the ones he loves. This language is part taken from the Jesus Storybook Bible. To rescue the ones he loves through his birth, through his life, through his death, and for, and through his resurrection. This is the hope, this is the, the power of Christmas. It's not in the feeling that happens. It's not in the anticipation of presence. It's not in the time with family. It's not even in how this holiday can be very hard for many people as they experience um, remembering loved ones who have passed away or experience hardship of financial or economic or mental causes. The hope of Christmas is that Jesus came into this world because he was absolutely crazy about you. And because of his great love for you, he said, I wanna be your shepherd. And to all who say, Jesus, I confess that I have nothing apart from you. I confess that I cannot save myself. To all who believe that Jesus died and rose again, he becomes their shepherd. And this idea of shepherd is pictures one who cares about the things of God and cares about the condition of his people. And so when you trust Jesus, when we trust Jesus for our salvation, or when we trust Jesus with every small and large thing in our life, we're saying, God, it's not my will I want, it's yours. God's not my agenda I want, it's yours. And we can trust because he is a good shepherd and a king that he will meet us with exactly what we need. Sometimes we find that we try to make our way to God on our own. We try to make ourselves holy. We might try to make ourselves righteous. And friends, there's no way we can do that. There's no righteousness that comes apart from Christ. And yet, when you become a child of God, he gives you his righteousness. And so the way that we're called to live, and we studied this in Colossians earlier this year, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, Jesus doesn't want to just be your Savior. He wants to be your Lord, which means he governs every decision in your life. 
but he also wants to be your life. In other words, he wants to be the strength, the, the person to whom you go to for wisdom, for knowledge, to, to know and remember who you are, to, to know how much you're loved. He, he wants you to walk in the fullness of who he is because he doesn't just come to save you from your sins. He comes to give you life, life eternal, but life abundantly here and now. I, I heard someone or read someone recently say one of the, one of the big markers f- for us as we're, as we're thinking through how we're experiencing life is the question, do I have joy? Because joy is something that can only come from the Holy Spirit. Um, happiness can come from a gift. Happiness can come from something that someone does for you. Joy, though, is something that wells up deep within you. And if you find that your joy tank is a little bit low this morning, I recommend you go to God and say, God, where am I trying to find my worth apart from you? Because when you know how much you're loved and you're loved deeply, when you know how much you're loved, one of the things that springs from that is worship. And one of the emotions we experience from that is joy. Because when our eyes are upward and they're fixed on him, even when things are not right in the world, they are right in our relationship with God. And we have hope. I don't know where you're at this morning, but as you enter whatever God has for you this week, I want you to know that God is with you, that God is for you, and that God wants to reveal himself to you wherever you are at that you know that you're loved and that you're chosen and that you're, you're precious in his sight, and that you know that you have meaning and you have purpose, not through anything you could merit, but simply because he made you and he created you and he loves you so much that he wants to have a relationship with you. And that same message is the message that our friends and our family need to hear as well. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, on a Christmas celebration day as we get ready to go have a a joyful time together gathered around food, we stop to be reminded that Christ has come into the world. The light of the world is here. And yet, God, there's a lot of heaviness that can be associated with the season And while there are hard things in this world, God, you have overcome sin and death in the grave. And we need not fear because, God, we trust in one who is above all, in one who is a shepherd, and in one who is a king. Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, that could be a whole lot of places. Would you remind us of who we are in Christ? God, would you remind us of your great love for us? God, would you remind us of the mission you have given your people to go and to make disciples of all nations? And Lord, as we do that, we pray that you would give us a great love for you and a great love for the people around us who are made in your image. 
we love God because you first loved us. Thank you for meeting us here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.